Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, my grandmother shifts in my gut. She feels large and muscular, coiled up and around herself. As long as I settle into an accepting rhythm, unquestioning as I let the days slip past, she remains sleeping there. The moment she senses me flexing my own will, questioning things, bucking against the rhythm, she flexes her one long muscle and sinks her teeth into my intestines. I've had scans of my liver, a camera fed into my stomach, an ultrasound. So far, the doctors have failed to diagnose the truth of it, which is that my grandmother is coiled in my large intestine, monitoring everything I do. She contracts her scaly body just enough to make me flinch as I open the results of my second genetic test. I can feel her shaking her head, tutting her tongue. She did not want her story told. That's an excerpt from a chapter titled Second Genetic Test in Chrissy Neen's latest book, The Three Burials of Lottie Neen. When her grandmother, mum, her second mother, dies, Chrissy Neen doesn't know how to feel. Lottie, born Dragica, kept the women and girls in her family in thrall, protected or kept away from the world in their Baba Yaga house and later the eccentric family lair, Dragon Hall. They watched old Hollywood reel-to-reels and made papier-mâché creatures. While Lottie bound them with healing witchcraft and terrifying fairy tales, all the while defying her grandchild's attempt to discover the truth of who she was and where she came from. And now Lottie has gone, and Chrissy, still somewhat cowed by her matriarch's long shadow, starts a journey to find out who she is, uncovering a real-life story every bit as fantastical as the stories her grandmother spun. The Three Burials of Lottie Neen is a paradoxical tapestry of witchcraft, gruesome fairy tales, serendipity, epigenetic legacies, family recipes, dragons, dinosaurs, secrets, lies, towering papier-mâché creations, and a journey of discovery from rural Queensland to Slovenia and finally Egypt, all told through ringing prose, a touch of poetry, and judicious use of images. This Chrissy Neen's seventh book feels like the culmination of a unique talent, owning the full extent of her literary skills while telling a story much stranger than fiction. Chrissy Neen joins me now to talk about her book and the craft behind it. Chrissy, welcome to Backstory. Hi, Mel. Thanks for having me. I I have to say... Um, you know, at the launch of your book, which I, I watched online, uh, it was in, in Brisbane, your editor, Mandy Brett, talks about your work. Rather than coming full circle a decade after your first book, A Memoir, Affection, 
that actually it snakes on doing its uh, very wonderful and idiosyncratic thing. And I feel like that is a, a really great description of the book you've created here. It's unlike anything else I have read, um, unlike any other family memoir I've read. And really, I think it is such a great reflection of your enormous talent and the breadth of your talent. So firstly, congratulations on this book. Thank you. I want to talk about it, though, because I want to talk about how you've crafted it, because you've actually, you've created something that not only reflects the kind of peculiar subject matter, and I've, I've tried to give a sense of that in the introduction, but you've really tried to, to make the book itself an artefact of that. So can you talk a bit about uh, how, you, uh, how you set off on this journey in the first place and, you know, why it is you made the decisions you did um, to, to embark on it in, in the kind of crafted way that you have? Look, it was it was actually um, a bit kind of piecemeal, I think, in terms of how I put it together. Because um, when I started work on this book, I wasn't really sure that I was going to have much information to go on. I had all these family secrets. Um, I had little hints of things that I knew that I wanted to look for, but I really didn't know if I was going to find very much. So when I first started out on the journey, I thought what I would need to do would be to look inside my body. So I did a lot of research into genetics and into science and into the body. I thought I'm going to have to look into the body. I'm going to have to unpack the fairy tales that my grandmother told me because the secrets um, you know, fairy tales are a map. They're, they're history, really, uh, and that's uh, you know across the board. We tell fairy tales, and, and oral cultures tell fairy tales um, to remember, uh, to remember history, to remember um, taxonomies. Um, they're, they're actually um, a, a massive map in themselves. So I thought I'll unpack these very strange fairy tales that I was brought up with, and that my grandmother was obsessed by. And then I would feed those small little bits of information um, into and around those things. So, and food culture as well, because my grandmother was very, very, um, uh, she sort of showed her love through food. So food was the way that she um, kept us safe, kept us well, and um, showed us that we, that we were loved. So at, at the beginning, that's all I had, and that's what I was going by, and that's what I was writing. But um, I knew that I'd have to go to Slovenia to try and, you know, physically place myself in the land that my grandmother was born in, um, to try and find out if I could find anything through looking at other, you know, Slovene people um, that would that I'd recognised as being my grandmother's story. Um, but, of course, when I got there, um, I found out so much more than I was expecting. So it became this... Um, I, my, my original file, uh, I, I sort of wrote this on a, a program called um, Scrivener. I was writing little sections. Well, I was writing handwriting in a notebook mostly, and then I was typing it into um, Scrivener. And there are just thousands and thousands of these little documents of you know, piecemeal little bits and pieces that, that range from food to fable to um, history to uh, actual, you know, physical kind of travel writing. Um, so all of these things are just all over the place in this document. And ultimately, when I came back to Australia, having kind of learnt so much um, more about my family, about myself and about my history, and having this massive kind of personal transformation through the process of, of travel, 
um, I then sat down with all of these little bits and pieces and it was a bit like cut and paste. It was like collage. You know, I'd, I'd gathered everything like a bowbird and then I had to kind of find ways of putting it together that made sense to a reader. And that was that was a challenge, I suppose, because um, it was so all over the place. And for ages I was like, what am I doing? What is this? It doesn't feel like it's a book with a traditional narrative and um, it's got all these threads and uh, I kind of felt it was a tapestry and I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll just keep doing it. It does really feel braided together in a, that kind of tapestry-like way as well. I, I was thinking about this because, um, you know, writing is sort of this dip into the subconscious, making these illogical connections to create a story. And yet this is a story that fits together so so well uh, when you, you kind of bowerbird all these, all these pieces together. It feels compellingly as though it could not be told any other way to get look I've tr- again I've tried to give a sense of of your story I would love you to sort of uh, to maybe describe it in your own words what was it like growing up with your grandmother it was wonderful and awful all at the same time I think um, it was definitely I, I knew that I was not being um, I was not in the same world as everybody else around me. I knew that it was a very rarefied world because um, my grandmother kept us um, in the house, um, very safe, um, but also very removed from the rest of the world. And in her house, uh, we weren't. We were very much. Um, controlled in terms of what we consumed media-wise. So um, we could only watch particular things on television that she chose and curated for us. Um, A lot of the time we didn't watch television. A lot of the time we um, listened to um, movies that my aunt had um, recorded on a reel-to-reel tape deck. Uh, So she'd actually recorded these old Hollywood movies and um, then we would just listen to them. So I suppose they were like audio books in a way, but just the movie the movie soundtrack Um, so I I grew up listening to movies that I'd never seen Um, and the whole time that we would be listening to these things at home we would be making these giant paper mache models that that my grandmother made and at one point they were being made for particular exhibitions so for the um, the uh, museum um, in Sydney uh, there were these giant dinosaurs that were exhibited at the museum and so that was a massive project that they took that took a long time, like a, probably a year of my childhood was taken up with making these massive um, life-size dinosaurs. Um, but there were also um, uh, exhibitions of fairy tales that were to be put in um, the local libraries, um, Fairfield Library, Blacktown Library. Um, there were you know, pr- presented for Easter or for um, Book Week. Uh, and so these things that we were making took up our entire space so in the daytime I'd be you know I would be walked to school um, because I wasn't allowed to go alone anywhere and then um, I'd go to school and have this insight into everybody else's world and then um, be walked home again and be in this kind of very rarefied world where it was a world of fairy stories, um, old Hollywood movies that we could only hear and not see, um, just my family alone and there were six of us at the time so it was quite a, a large intergenerational group of people um, together talking and um, telling stories but not real stories, not 
true stories. Um, they were always kind of fairy tales or um, imaginary stories as well. So yeah, it was a it was a strange and wonderful time where art was the most important thing. And we were, you know, trained that art was more important than anything else. Um, we didn't even have to, you know, clean up after ourselves if we were creating. So the creativity was very centre, which I know is not necessarily everybody's story. Um, but there was also this sense that we were isolated because we didn't have, you know, there was. I lived in Blacktown, which was a very multicultural um, place, and so my migrant family was there amongst a whole lot of migrant families. But other migrant families at school had, you know, they had Greek school or they had, um, you know, Ukrainian dancing or they, they did cultural activities that really linked them to their homeland. But um, my family didn't because they were really trying to leave their history behind and not think about it and not talk about it. And so I had this sense that I was from somewhere else, but I didn't know quite where and I didn't have access to any of those cultural things that my fellow school students had as well. This really leads to the kind of paradox uh, at the kind of at the heart of of this book, which is, you know, it's both fairy tales and the truth hidden beneath them, uh, the idea of science versus witchcraft and magic, you kind of allow those things to sit next to each other, uh, sometimes interrogating it, but then also letting them them be there. Even at your book launch, I think uh, people were saying, you know, Lottie's come, has created the storms and the pandemic, and there's this real sense of her being this genuine force of of nature, of, of of something from fairy tales uh, at the same time as you interrogating these, you know, the the kind of molecular levels at which you've been affected by the places you must have come from and how you can use that as a blueprint for discovery. The point at which you decide you are going to step out from that shadow and actually do something your grandmother has told you not to do. So you're, you're, this is another paradox in the book that, in fact, you are honouring Lottie through this book, but she would be murderously angry <laughs> knowing yeah. that you went about doing it. Can you talk about that aspect of the book? Yeah, look, it, it's really um, hard to be able to tell your own story without implicating other people. And I know that my grandmother didn't want to um, her own story to be told. She wanted to forget it. Um, but for me, the process of family forgetting um, was very damaging um, and and led to a lot of kind of a, a lot of trauma I suppose for um, the various generations that came after her and so for me I the only way I could live with these secrets was to actually tell them to find them so that they didn't have so much terrifying power um, and they weren't so damaging to me so the um the process of actually telling the stories was one that, you know, it, it's, a, it's an act of love because I absolutely adored and revered my grandmother. Um, but it's also um, exactly what she would have hated me to do. But I couldn't do anything else because um, it was, it, it needed to be done in terms of my own healing um, and it needed to be done in terms of um, my own storytelling and to come into my own power, I suppose. So, you know, if this had been, if my grandmother was the person in this position, I'm pretty sure she would have done exactly the same thing and defied her grandmother because she's a very powerful, um, strong person. And so for me to actually 
um, do this and disobey her and tell this story is a bit like me coming into my own witchy power, I suppose. <laughs> because, you know, I just get to, I get to be able to interrogate my own story um, in my own voice and to put it on the page. But I also, at the same time, had to honour that this is not her story. This is my story about her story. So um, there's a there's a bit of a um, a paradox in there because. Although I'm trying to get to the truth of what happened, the truth is very subjective and my own experience of finding the truth really colours how I see what I find. So um, for, you know, for her, the story would be very, very different. But for me, I just have to tell it the way I discover it with all my kind of biases and with all my imaginings um, there as well. But I've, I've been very honest about the fact that this is not... Not exactly her story. This is really my story about her story. So you do the very thing that she asks you not to do after a kind of investigation of your own genes, thinking you know what is going to come up. Uh, you have a moment I don't want to give away where, where even a genetic test seems somehow uh, to be a reflection of your, your grandmother's absolutely stum nature about everything to do with her ancestry. It's like she's foiled yeah. me from beyond the grave. Um, you, you go through that process, but you ultimately have to confront the fact that you're going to need to do the very thing she has asked you or, in fact, banned you <laughs> from doing, which is to go to the place she is originally from can you talk yeah. about that step in your journey in your literal journey in this case yeah I, I kind of always knew that I would I, I would have to go to Slovenia to find any answers um, I knew that I'd have to leave Australia um, and go there because you know things are different um, here to how they are there and I knew that I would be able to understand a bit more of her from being in that country but she never wanted me to go there and it was um, you know it, it was really, um, she just didn't want anybody to go back to Slovenia. There was some kind of, some element of um, fear, I suppose, of going back there. She was frightened of it and frightened of the truth of her own journey. And so for me to finally decide to go to Slovenia was very much against what she would have wanted. Um, and, you know, at one point, in, at one point in time, I, I asked my mother if um, if she would accompany me so she could find out about, um, you know, a history as well, and she was definitely not going to do that. It was definitely too frightening for her to um, to defy my grandmother to go back to Slovenia. So the, the journey itself was something that I was excited about but also dreading at the same time because um, I, I do feel like she still has power beyond the grave, and I... I felt like she was going to somehow curse me <laughs> for doing, uh, for going on this trip. Um, and so the whole time I was on the trip, I was really waiting for the disasters to occur um, because I knew that she would chase me down and, um, you know, the ghost of my grandmother would, would um, haunt me on this trip. But it turned out that the trip was actually full of the opposite of that. It was full of these strange and magical coincidences and connections. Um, so I would be... I would be in a bookshop um, and uh, just doing my writing process and not realising that that bookshop was the publisher of a book that would be the key to um, discovering my, my own history and my own story. So there were things like that. And also I, I 
found one of my dearest friends now is um, a woman called BJ Silcox, who's an editor and a, a, a reviewer and a writer in Australia. And um, she was living over in Egypt at the time, and she just randomly sent me an email that she had loved um, a particular book that I'd written, and and that she was in Egypt, and if I was ever in Egypt, to um, that I should come and stay with her. And I had never heard of this person or met this person before. I didn't know who they were, and yet I had been wanting to find a way to get to Egypt. And this letter came just as... I needed to get to Egypt. So it was this kind of weird, strange, very kind of creepy, magical um, connections that were happening all along the way. These these um, coincidences were really, you wouldn't write it into a book because yeah. no one would believe it. <laughs> Fiction, you'd go, no, nah, that's not true. Well, that's it. I, um, I was thinking that these, uh, these serendipitous occurrences are, you know, almost feel like these plot devices that if it were in a work of fiction, I'm sure your editor... Um, presumably Mandy would be rolling her eyes about, but in fact are just beautifully told and and, uh, and just extraordinary. It, it was. It was, it, and I was even thinking, as I was writing up what was happening to me, I was even thinking that, you know, if this was fiction, there was no way I'd make this a turning point because, um, you know, it's too coincidental. You just hate coincidences in fiction because they don't happen like that in real life, but in this particular journey, coincidences were a dime a dozen. They were happening all the time. And it made me, you know, again, it's that kind of dichotomy between me wanting to believe in the science and wanting to be a woman of science and wanting to only believe in facts, firm, hard facts, and yet all this kind of weird magic um, stuff was sort of bubbling around me, stuff that I can't explain in terms of science, like all these coincidences. Um, you know, it almost feels like it was fate, that it was fated that I did make this journey, find these people, find out the story as easily as I ended up doing during the process of writing this book. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Chrissy, Dean, we have talked uh, quite a lot about this, uh, you know, how this tale has come together and brought you to Slovenia, finally, the place that your your grandmother Lottie uh, banned you from going. Uh, it has t- it takes you further than that, though. There are all sorts of things you expected to find when you got to Slovenia. What you actually find is quite something else. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I can, actually. I really um, wasn't sure what I was going to find when I got there. I just thought that I'd find people who looked a bit like me and I would find myself in the people there, but I didn't. And it was when I'd come to that dead end that I finally realised I needed to look at why my family went to Egypt. Because my grandfather was born in Egypt. He had... um, Actually, I found out five generations of his family had lived in Egypt. And my mother was born in Egypt and my aunt was born in Egypt. And I didn't know why my grandmother had left Slovenia and gone to Egypt. So I was sitting in this little cafe where I did my writing, um, the Azil Cafe Bookshop, um, and they have a little bookshop downstairs. And I went down to the bookseller downstairs and I just kind of thought, look, have you got 
anything about Egypt. And the bookseller said to me, oh, what, like the history of Egypt, the pharaohs? And I said, no, 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 my grandmother went to Egypt from Slovenia and I just want to know why. So maybe cultural history? And she said, oh, she was Alexandrinka. Now, this was the first time I'd heard this term, the Alexandrinka. So I just said to her, I've never heard this. What is this? And she said, oh, the movement of women that came from Slovenia and went to Egypt. And suddenly, a whole world of stories cracked open to me because there was a movement of women. It wasn't just my grandmother. She wasn't some outlier who went to Egypt by herself. It was a movement of women who went from Slovenia and went to work in Egypt to send money home to their family. This woman had actually, um, she was working for this bookshop, which was also a publisher, because in Slovenia, the bookshops have publishers attached to them. And this particular publisher of the bookshop I'd been working in for three months, um, they published this book about the Alexandrinka. And this was something that was sitting underneath me the whole time I was doing this research and didn't know until I asked. So I ended up um, buying this book about the Alexandrinka and discovering that there was so much pressure on this particular part of Egypt, uh, which was on the border with Italy, and there was um, so much economic pressure and then wars and then um, more pressure from World War One that the women had to leave to make money to send home to the families because the families were starving. The men were all taken as soldiers for one army or another. And so these women had these children that they couldn't feed. And so they sent all the women between the ages of, you know, about 13 through till um, 60, really, uh, working age women, they got sent to Egypt and they got um, positions with uh, rich families over there and they sent their wages home. And my grandmother was a part of this massive women of you know, movement of women, so this kind of almost feminist movement of women because they were taking on the roles that men had very, very clearly taken up to that point. So it was a a massive shift in everything, in my research, in my book, in my understanding of my grandmother. Also knowing that um, this particular period of history in, in Slovenia was a bit of a forgotten history too because it was seen as a a shameful period of their history because it was women working instead of men. It was women who were sent away from their families, leaving little babies. Often the women would be um, nursing mothers. They'd have a baby, they'd leave their baby at home and go and nurse somebody else's child as a a wet nurse Um, and they got more money for that so they could send that money home as well. So it was quite... For a, for a very Catholic community, um, it was not really the done thing for women to leave their children, for mothers to leave their children, and for women to leave their family. And so there was this very complicated necessity, but also this shame attached to this um, this movement of women, which lasted for you know fifty, sixty, seventy years. Um, you, you do yeah. in the in the book uh, before you re- make this revelation or this discovery, uh, you 
you know, share a, a fairy tale about beautiful Vita, I believe is the name of the character, who essentially leaves behind, uh, you know, is lured aboard a vessel going somewhere and leaves behind her her husband and child to die, basically, uh, to go and feed the the Queen of Spain's child. And this is something that's a a cultural absorption of, you know, of what you've just described, which is rather than honouring these women who clearly have saved their village and uh, contributed to it, uh, they're kind of being put in their place in a sense. Again, well, there's an attempt to do that, which uh, you are kind of, you know, working to refurbish in this book. Yeah, there's definitely all all of the stories that have been written about um, these Alexandrinka. There have been a couple of stories written in Slovenian and in Italian. I can't speak either language, so I haven't read the stories, but I've read about them. And all those stories, um, they paint these women as fallen women, as um, you know, as uh, sinners in a way. Um, so there's this kind of cultural. Um, telling of this story as something that is full of shame, that's full of heartbreak and that in a way these women, even though they were sent by their families, you know, their husbands sent them, there was still this sense that they were doing the wrong thing by going. So I think for me and also for it seems that there's a lot of the grandchildren and granddaughters in particular of these Alexandrinka are beginning to try and uncover this history and to tell this story. So what I had started as an individual story, I realise is now a part of uh, a big push by women of my generation to uncover this story and to reframe it as something that's positive, as something that was women you know, braving these very scary conditions, going away from their family and going to a new place which was frightening, the culture that was really frightening to them, and that they were brave enough to do that. And in that journey, they discovered themselves. They became women of the world. There was, you know, Egypt was the cultural capital of the world at the time. And so there was a mix of ideas and they read widely and they got lots of influences from all around um, Europe um, that were all kind of being bubbling around in Alexandria at the time. And so these women actually became quite worldly, which was wonderful until um, in 1956 where um, they they had to go back to their own place. And so a lot of these women went back to Slovenia where there are all these stories of them as being fallen women and, um, you know, sinning women. And so they had to almost forget all the things that they'd learnt while they were over there so that they could um, fit into a much smaller life in their villages in Slovenia again. But this, of course, uh, is not the case for your grandmother. There is one more stop in your journey, which is... uh to take you to Egypt with the, the oddly serendipitous uh, invitation from BJ Silcox, uh, never having met you, only having read uh, your book, just at that time sending an email across to you that uh, invi- essentially inviting you to come and stay right at the time when you realise that is the natural progression of your journey. Talk about yes, what happens yes. once you arrive in Egypt. Look, Egypt was a whirlwind for me. It was um, 
it was kind of crazy because it was midsummer, and I don't recommend anyone go to Egypt in midsummer. It's ridiculously hot, um, and it's very hard to think through that kind of heat that you have in that place. But I ended up um, loving BJ. BJ became one of my best friends, um, if not my best friend. You know, she's someone that I talk to every day now, um, and. She was there living in Egypt and came with me to Alexandria to try and find the last few remaining children of the Alexandrinka that were still living in Alexandria. And so when I got there in Alexandria, I got to um, meet these people who were the grandchildren of these Alexandrinka who hadn't left. So a lot of the time it was people who had married local men and um, set up a life in Egypt, and then they were still there. So I was there in um, the lounge room of one of these women and uh, trying to piece together her story and my story, and we figured out that we were actually cousins. Oh, it's, it still <laughs> blows me away. <clears throat> it's, just, it's just the level of serendipity in this book <laughs> is... <laughs> Beyond belief. But I think, I mean, it's so fascinating because you come to your journey equipped with the most unlikely of tools, which is fairy tales and food, uh, family recipes, and, you know, some kind of vague genetic understanding, but not really. It's a bit of a confusing roadmap. And yet, that is exactly in some strange way what you needed to go on this, this journey, like literally like a fairy tale journey uh, you're finding uh, that these these things are gradually un- unraveling the food suddenly makes sense when you arrive yes. in yes. Egypt yeah it does even from the first moment of arriving that night when we arrived at BJ's place they had a, um, a platter of street food out for us and I ate that food and for the first time it was like oh this is what I grew up with and I really I had thought that I would find that food in Slovenia, but I didn't. I recognised a few of the sweets from Slovenia, but I didn't really recognise anything else. But when I got to Egypt, suddenly all of the food, all of the street food, all of the home-cooked food was the sort of food that I had grown up with. And so it turns out that I hadn't grown up with Slovenian food at all. I'd grown up with a mixture of Egyptian and Syrian um, food, and that was because my grandmother married a man whose mother was Syrian, and so she learnt to cook in that kitchen, that kitchen which had a lot of Syrian dishes and a lot of Egyptian dishes. So this food really came back to me when I came to Egypt. It was this very clear link to my my early days and and the smell of um, formadamus, which was my grandmother's favourite dish, this very um, this slow cooked bean dish, and that was a, an Alexandrian dish that I discovered there that was absolutely a, a treasure from my childhood. 
There's a there's a, a reference which I'm I'm not going to accurately reflect here, but I think your your partner at some point says to you 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 love food, you know. And uh, for me, with my kind of background, I immediately translated it that to food is love, uh, for you. And I really felt that in this moment that you you're suddenly getting this true sense of who you are, you know, what your love is and what your what your sense of self is through this. But there's more than that. The the genetic inheritance that you've carried with you as expressed in the genes that, that the world sees, you know, your appearance, you know, had been a puzzle to you. You you went to Slovenia thinking that you would look like the people there and you didn't. And then you suddenly realise this is also where you were from at, and a side of your inheritance you hadn't even set out to explore in the same way, which was your the legacy from your grandfather. Yeah, I didn't expect that I would be as close to my grandfather um, because he was a very quiet figure in my childhood. I spent a lot of time with him, but it was um, very quiet. We used to play music together, and um, I've since discovered that his um, father was um, a, a musician in the uh, orchestra there in Alexandria. So he has this kind of music heritage that he brought down and he used to play music with me. So those were the kind of memories I have of my grandfather. But going to Egypt and seeing the nuns who were Egyptian nuns who were um, still part of the Slovenian order, so they spoke Slovene, and they were there at the order that was there set up to take the Slovenian women in. Um, that Those nuns looked just like me. <laughs> so, you know, they had similar kind of skin colour to me. They had similar facial features. Um, I'm quite fat, and they were quite fat as well. And it was like, this is where my genetics are from as well. It's really strongly from my grandfather, even though in Slovenia there are short people, just like I am, but they're also mountain people, so they're, they're very big at climbing mountains and they're very fit and they're very thin. So um, there was a really interesting shift in my understanding of myself genetically and how much my grandfather was a part of my body it's such an interesting thing as well how beautifully this has kind of um, given you this sense of self that you were you were looking for in in the sense that your grandmother had broke brought you up in this wondrous isolation I have to say it's an extraordinary uh, you know there were extraordinary things as well as problematic things in that uh, but you were kept from this kind of the male line in your family to a certain extent this has you know, this journey really gave you a full or a more complete sense of who you were that your grandmother maybe didn't want you to have for her own reasons. Yeah, yeah. There was, she was definitely afraid of men all the way through my childhood and that was something that I didn't understand because, I mean, as a bisexual woman, I was um, attracted to men as well as women and I wanted to be friends with men um, and I kind of felt this connection to men, but I wasn't allowed to kind of talk to the guys at school or, or spend any time with them because she was terrified of men. And learning some things about her through this journey really clicked into place. It was like a, a puzzle piece clicking into, into place as to why she was so terrified of men as well. Yeah, there, you certainly do explore that too, and it's quite some quite um, some quite deep and uh, moving 
experiences that you have that unbelievably, <laughs> given the territory we've covered, uh, there's still mm. plenty more um, in this book that we I haven't even <laughs> delved into, uh, Chrissy Neen. This is just extraordinary. I have to say, and I, I own this off air at the start uh, of our chat, uh, that being myself of a very confusing mixed-race heritage, I... I really felt so moved by this book. It's, it is, you know, wonderful to see people sit in the complexity of who they are. We have such simplistic views or have grown up perhaps in a country with more simplistic views on race uh, that for mm. someone like me and for someone like you, Chrissy, I, I, can, I, I want to see more literature like this that explores these strange um, liminal areas but also finding a sense of belonging Within that, I'm so pleased yeah. to see that you have. Yeah, I'm so glad that it's connected with people who are from lots of different places. I've had lots of emails from people from, you know, Asian Asian countries, or other European countries, people who have very similar kind of relationship to secrets about their heritage. It seems that there was a whole generation of people who just wanted to leave that all behind to forget it and to kind of start afresh and anew without history. But that has been quite damaging for the people that have come after them. And so I feel like this kind of reclaiming of history and talking about our history, even if it's difficult, even if it's traumatic, that sort of thing is the only way we can heal and move forward, I think. Well, uh, Chrissy Dean, I can't believe an hour has gone. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today to talk about your book on Backstory. It has been so great to talk to you, Mel. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, Chrissy Neen, author of The Three Burials of Lottie Neen. And you're just going to have to read it to work out how the device of The Three Burials works in this truly astonishing book. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. <laughs>